0: Hi, my name is Rabbi Pinny Dunner. Welcome back to Exploring Jewish History, broadcast from Beverly Hills, California. This is now part three of episode one in the series, devoted to rogues, rascals, and rapscallions. As you know, we've been looking at the lives and adventures of some of the quirky characters who never quite make it into mainstream Jewish history, but these are the characters who are front and center in the world of Pinny Dunner's Jewish history. There are two types of people who we have featured in Rogues, Rascals and Rapscallions. One of them is the type of person in days gone by who attracted local attention for their unusual activities or may even have made international headlines at some point. And when they did, it was always for the wrong reasons. Afterwards, they disappeared from sight never to be heard of again until now. That definition best describes the Golden Rebbe, Rebito Gleifer, who was featured in part two. And then there is another kind of person, someone like Rabbi Harris Rosenberg, who was featured in part one. People who are so obscure and nondescript that during their lifetime they attract no attention at all. Only after they've long gone, granular historical research reveals a secret aspect of who they were and what they did, which shows them up in a totally different light. In part three of Rogues, Rascals and Rapscallions, I'm going to focus on type one. The next episode will be about type two. The first story is about someone who will lead us into a story about another. Both stories will shock you. Both stories will mesmerize you. Both stories will absorb you. And both stories will probably make you think long and hard about who is what and what is who in the tapestry of Jewish history, even in stories with which you are very familiar. As I already said to you when introducing parts one and two, you literally couldn't make this stuff up. And as you know by now, I don't make any of it up. Every aspect of each story is fastidiously and painstakingly researched so that you get the full picture. Some parts pretty, others not so much. Although, to be fair, I'm very grateful to the many people who contact me after each episode to offer enhancements and occasionally corrections to the narrative I've put together. And in a moment I'm going to mention one such correction. Someone corrected something I said and his correction is absolutely on the mark, even though the quote-unquote facts I used for my presentation were based on official documentation. But before I get to that correction, let me thank our faithful sponsors. Exploring Jewish History is part of the Fishman Jewish History Lecture Series, sponsored by George and Susie Fishman. This particular episode is sponsored in memory of Susie's mother, Magda Weiss, whose Yadzeit is on the 10th of Shvat. May her Neshama have an Aliyah, and may we all be zeiched to see trias Okay. Let's address the correction. Part 2 of Rogues, Rascals and Repescalians premiered on YouTube on July 18th, just over a month ago. The following day, on July 19th, I received an email. This is what it said. Dear Rabbi Dunna, I heard your lecture on the golden Rebbe, Rabbi Yitzhak who is my great uncle. You are not correct that my great-aunt Dietela was five years older than her husband. It was much more than that. She was actually close to 40 years old when they got married and her immigration papers give the wrong birth year on purpose immigrants always wanted to make themselves younger on their citizenship applications I was shocked are you kidding me that means that Gitela was like 10 years older than her husband who ever heard of such a thing but as you'll see her great-nephew has the evidence to prove it as fact beyond any doubt just to be clear my assertion of the five-year age gap was based on this document, the original petition for the Lifer family's naturalisation as United States citizens. Take a closer look. You'll see that it gives Rebbitzhock's date of birth as January 19th, 1893, and Rebertson Gittler's date of birth as January 19th, 1888. I even noted the curiosity of them having the exact same birthday well, as it turns out, they probably didn't. After a further email exchange with Gitela's great nephew, he told me that he has seen a birth certificate which shows Gitela's birth year as 1882. The truth is, I should have spotted that her mother, Tovarocho, the daughter of Rebileza Brandwein of Ozipoli, died in 1882, so Gitela could not possibly have been born in 1888. Also, the oldest child of Gitila's father's second marriage, her name was Leah, and she was later married to a Rabinovich, a Koritz and Shepatovka descendant. was born on Sukkot in 1883, so Gitila must have been born in 1882, shortly before her mother died. Gitila's great nephew also has two letters from Gitila's father, the Nadvorna Rebbe Rebersha, who presided over the Nadvorna court in Bochnia and later on in Sutmar. One of the letters is dated Parshas Truma, 1881. Rebercha writes to his father, Reb Dvorna, that his wife is pregnant and if the child is born a girl, he will name her Gittel. In the second letter dated Parshas Toldus, 1884, Rebercha asks Reb to pray for his daughter Gittel, who is unwell. Bottom line, Gitla was probably 11 years older than her husband Rabbi Yitzchak which only makes the question of why he married her even stronger. Although, it's possible that Rabbi Yitzhak also faked his birth year, and he was actually older than he said he was. Anyway, I think I know why he married her. The full story of how Rabbi Yitzhak met Gitler is in an article by Meir Redlich, a Yiddish journalist in the Warsaw newspaper, Heintagenayas. The article is dated... July 31st, 1938. When Rebidok was still single, he was in the military supplies business and he was very successful. Then, one fine day, out of the blue, he was arrested for a criminal infraction involving the supply of barbed wire to the army and he was jailed pending trial. Most of his family was horrified by his arrest, especially because of the negative publicity and instead of offering him support they kept away from him. The one exception was Gitla, Yitzchok's first cousin who brought him kosher food to jail. Then as soon as he was released, they got married. Read into it whatever you want. That's what happened. And the fact is this they stayed together. Rabbi Yitzchok and Gitla through thick, and thin, and Rebitzchak was a faithful father to Gitala's children by her first marriage, treating them absolutely like his own children. Let me thank Gitala's great nephew for helping me correct the mistake regarding Gitela's age. As I've said so many times before, without the Baker Street Irregulars, my output would not be as ritually informed as it is. And by the way, do you want to join the Baker Street Irregulars? We now have. A Baker Street Irregulars WhatsApp group just email Carly your cell number and we'll add you to the group Carly's email address is Carly carly at y-i-n-b-h org it's on the screen now if you're watching if I ever have a query that needs research or if I'm covering a particular topic that's going to feature in an upcoming presentation you as a Baker Street irregular will be informed via the WhatsApp group and then hopefully you can do your magic. Okay. after that very long preamble, let's get to the story. The story I have for you in this episode is quite a detailed introduction that is not, strictly speaking, relevant to the story itself, but it's important, as you'll see. The long introduction is about a very great man called the Schotze Rebbe. If you come from London, you'll probably have heard of the Schotzer Rebbe. You'll know that if you visit the Adass Sral Cemetery in Enfield, which is in north London, you'll encounter the oil of London's most famous Hasidic Rebbe, Rav Shulam Moskowitz, the Schotzer Rebbe who died in 1958. Here's a photo of how the oil used to look when I still lived in London, over a decade ago. And here's a photo of how the oil looks now. And this is what the oil looks like inside. And here's the thing: the Shotsareba's grave site is really quite unusual. Because the Shatsarebba left a very interesting tzavar, a last will and testament. And he insisted that the tzavar be published and publicized after he died. Part of the tzavo is actually affixed to the wall inside the oil. Here it is. It's an incredible text containing an amazing posthumous promise for those who visit the shotzer grave but there's also quite a twist listen to what the tzavot says these are the shotzer actual words it is well known that i've always tried to help people to repent from their evil ways and thank god i've succeeded many times therefore Whoever needs any kind of help or to be healed from a sickness, whether for themselves or for someone else, should go to my grave, preferably on a Friday before noon, and they should light a candle for my neshama, for my soul, and make their request. They should state their name and their mother's name, and if they do that, I will certainly intercede on their behalf with my saintly ancestors, asking that they awaken God's mercy for a Yeshua or a Rafur. What an incredible promise to make. Only a holy man like the Shotzer and I'll tell you more about who he was in a moment, only a holy man like him can make such a promise and be confident that his heavenly prayers will make a difference. And they do make a difference. I know many people who have prayed at the Shotzer graveside in London and lit a candle exactly as he said they should, and their prayers have been answered. It's actually incredible. Miracles have happened. Lives have been changed forever. A light has appeared when all hope was lost. And it all happened because they prayed at the Shotzer grave and they asked him to pray on their behalf in the heavenly realm. But, you know the score, there's no such thing as a free lunch. And there's definitely no such thing as a blank cheque when it comes to something like this. And of course the Shotzer never intended his promise to be a one-way street. He didn't just offer to pray for someone and grant them a blessing without asking for something back in return oh no absolutely not he was very clear and the inscription at his gravesite expresses his his wishes unequivocally there is a condition attached to his commitment to pray for you a very serious condition any person coming to visit the shotzer ebbe's caver Looking for a Yeshua or a Fuah must first commit to improving their standard of Yiddishkeit in a meaningful way. For example, the Shota Rebbe says, someone who has kept their business open on Shabbos until now, if they want him to pray for them, then they must promise that from now on they will keep their business closed on Shabbos. Or, if a person uh, usually shaves with a razor, from now on they need to promise to shave using a halachically permitted electric shaver. Or, if the supplicant is a woman and she doesn't cover her hair, from now on she must cover her hair. Or if it is a woman who doesn't go to the mikveh when she needs to, if she wants that blessing, she will need to commit that from now on she will keep family purity laws. And just to be clear, none of these are small changes to make in your life. They are big and meaningful changes. But only on the basis that you make those changes, the Shotsu promises to intercede on your behalf. Absolutely incredible. The tsavo inscription at the gravesite finishes with these words. Listen carefully. Everything I'm saying here needs to be clearly known to those who come to my grave. They must keep their promise and they should not try to deceive me, God forbid. Otherwise, I will be very angry. And here's the clincher. The schotzerebbe concludes as follows. Unfortunately, he says, there is already far too much deceit in this world. I couldn't agree more. And the Shatzerebbe was adamant. Deceit is destructive. Deceit is corrosive. Deceit is devastating. And the Shatzerebbe knew this only too well from a story that occurred in his own family. A dreadful story that haunted him till his dying day and which continues to haunt the family until today. But before I get to the story itself, let me tell you. As I promised I would, about Rabsulam Moskowitz, the Shotsaremma. He was born on the 17th of Kislev, 1877, in Vibranivka, a tiny village about 30 miles southeast of Lvov, which was then in Galicia and is now in Ukraine. Rabsulam was the eldest of 17 children of Yosef Moshe Moskowitz of Sulitsa and his second wife. Yosef Moshe's first wife was Frimit daughter of the second Kemarna Rebbe, Reb Leza Tzvi Safrin, author of the Sefer ur innaim whose father, Rabbi Yitzhak Isaac, was the first Kemarna Rebbe. They were married in 1875 when Frimit was 15, but she died the following year. Reb Maudcha Yosef Moshe quickly remarried. His second wife was Fega. She was the daughter of Reb Naftoli Tzvi Rubin of Radichov. The sign of the famous Rubin rabbinic dynasty. All of them descendants of Rabbi Chil Michal the Maggid of Zlotchiv. Here's a photo of the Zlocheva Maggid's oil. And via her grandmother Adel, Fager was the great granddaughter of the Sar of Belz. Rabbi Sholom Moskowitz, their first child, was named after the Sar Sholom of Belz. Rabbi Motros of Moshe's father, Rabbi Yoel Moskowitz, who died in 1886, was the first Shatzareba. Rabbi was the son-in-law of Rabmeah Hasheni Hashemi Premishlana, which, for those of you who follow my history videos, means that I'm related to the Shotza dynasty via my wife Sabine, who is a Premishlana Einikel. Rabbi was a very holy Jew. The legend about him is that he never slept in a bed on any weeknight, only on Friday nights. And on his tombstone it says he devoted one-fifth of everything he had to tzedakah, to charity. Shatz is the Yiddish name for Suchiyava a small town in the far northeast of Romania, in an area called Bukovina, which for almost 150 years, until the end of the First World War, was part of the Habsburg Empire, also known as the Austro-Hungarian Empire. In 1880, just a couple of years after Rav was born, the Jewish population of Schotz was 3,750, which was about one-third of the town's total population. Rav studied Gomorrah and Haloha with Rav Sholemod the Rav of Berjani. Who wrote multiple halachas for him and was known as the Maharsham? Reb Shulam also studied Kabbalah and chasidus not with the Maharsham, but with his uncle, Reb Leibish Halpen, who was also known as the Berjana Rebbe. And by the way, his full name was Reb Baruch Zorach Aryeh Yehuda Leibish Halpen, a very long name, but he was known to all as the Rebbe Leibish, much simpler. I think you'll agree. The Maharsham and Reb Leibish were Reb Shulam's two principal teachers. They were also next-door neighbors. Sadly, they were also bitter rivals, following a bitter dispute over the continuation of the Halpan family's monopoly over the rabbinate of Berejani. Reb Shulam got his smicha, his rabbinic ordination from the Maharsham, but he would also proudly tell people that he got smicha from the Belzer Rebbe, Rebbe Socher Rakach, which is, to put it mildly, a highly unusual claim. Rebbers don't usually give smicha. What Reb Shulam meant by it was this story. One time in Belz, Reb was with some other budding rabbis, all of them knowledgeable in halacha. They were in the presence of the Belsa Rebbe. A discussion was going on. They were struggling with a practical halachic question. Someone had asked them, and they needed the psak, a psakdin. But the Belzataim wasn't around to paskin. Suddenly, the Belsa Rebbe, who had been listening to the discussion, said to them all, just ask Reb Shulam Shatza. He knows the answer, and whatever he says, that's the Haloha, which meant that the Belzer Rebbe considered Rav Reb to be a Paisuk and a rov, which was kind of like giving him smicha. Rav Shulam Shotz's father, Reb Motrius of Moshe, did not inherit the Shatz Rebbe title when his father died. Instead, he was the Rabbi and the Rebbe of Sulitza, about 50 miles from Shatz where there were about 1,800 Jews. Originally controlled by Turkey, at that point in time, Sulitza was, like Schatz, also part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And at the end of the 19th and the beginning of the 20th century, when many Jews were escaping from Russia, Sulitza was the place through which illegal immigrants were smuggled across the border from Russia into Austrian territory. It was Reb of Yosef Moshe's brother, Reb Meyer who became the Rebbe. In this photo, he is flanked by his two sons, Reb Yankel and Reb Moshe Leib. Reb Meir was married to Dina Rubin, daughter of Reb Yitzchak Rubin of Brody, and sister of Reb Naftali Tzvi Rubin of Radachov, whose daughter, Fager, was Reb y- Madcha Yosef Moshe's second wife, and therefore Reb mother. So, and follow me carefully on this. When Reb Shulam married Shlomza Moskowitz, the daughter of Reb Meir, his wife was his first cousin, his father's brother's daughter, as well as his first cousin once removed because Shlomzer was also his mother's first cousin. In 1905, eight years after Rapshulem married Shlomzer, they were married in 1897, he was appointed to be the Rav in Schatz as opposed to Rebbe, which was his father-in-law Reb Meir's position. At that stage Rapshulem was not interested in being a chesidish Rebbe. Instead he wanted to be a Rav and a Dyan. And the opening for him in his family's town was perfect. Although he was still very young, just 27 years old, he fearlessly took on the local issues, the mikveh, the shchita, etc. But assimilation had begun to infect this remote corner of the Jewish world, and he met with a lot of resistance. Reb Shulam focused on the youth, and even had a small yeshiva in Shots where he taught local bachrim. One of his yeshiva students was a young Reb Meir Shapira later to become a world-renowned Rav and the founder and Rosh Hashiva of Yeshivas Chachmei Lublin, as well as the originator of the Dafyomi program. Reb Shulem recognized young Meir's unique brilliance and managed to convince him not to go to university to become a lawyer or a doctor, which his parents wanted him to do, but instead to focus his genius on rabbinic studies, an influence that had such an impact on Jewish history, even to this day. Another student of Reb Shulem at, the, at a young age, was a boy by the name of Chaim Zanvil Abramovitz, who later in life became known as the Rybnitzer Rebbe. During the First World War, Reb Shulam and his family, together with his in-laws, left Schatz and moved to Vienna to escape the intense war situation in the area where they lived. Then, when the war was over, they returned to shots but they discovered that in the four years of the war, everything had completely changed. The decline in religion among the emerging generation within the community had accelerated, no doubt partly or even mainly as a result of the trauma of the war. It was a total disaster and Abshulam realised he could no longer stay in shots if he wanted to remain true to himself and ensure an uncontaminated chassidish future for his family. At first, Rapshulam moved to Tarnov, which is exactly halfway between Krakow and Raisha, in Galicia, about 380 miles from Schatz. But after a year and a half, it was clear he couldn't make it there. The family was so poor, they were starving. Literally, they couldn't afford to buy food. Desperate for funds to support his family, Rapsulam went around Europe to raise money. One of his stops along the way was Cologne, Germany where there were a few Galitziana Hasidim who had relocated there after the First World War. These Ostjuden, as they were known by local Jews, were not particularly welcome in the Ashkenaz, very formal Yekish shuls in town. They had their own shtibel and they were looking for a rabbi to lead them. They were so impressed with Reb Shulem that they asked him to move to Cologne. And guess what? He did. In 1920, before Yom Noraim, Rav left Tarnov with his family and moved to Cologne, where he led a chesidische Stiebel on Tybaldsgasse, very close to the big orthodox shul on Glockengasse, and also not far from the rather more intensively orthodox Adas Yeshuren shul in St. Alpengasse, Upperenstrasse. Over time, Rav became very friendly with the Rav of Adas of of Immanuel Karlebach, one of the many brothers of the very distinguished and celebrated Karlebach German rabbinic family. In this photo, Rav is in his military chaplain uniform. He was a chaplain for the German army during the First World War. In 1927, Rav visited London. He stayed at the home of an old friend of his from Romania, Shlomo Bardiga, an, em- an immigrant from Bukovina who owned a store on Brick Lane selling China plates, many of them with distinctive Jewish designs. Bardiga had spent time with Rav in Cologne, where he had come to do business. When Rupshulam arrived at Baradigah's home in London, he spotted something he didn't like about the way the home was being run from a halachic perspective. And he told Baradigah he wasn't staying with him. He would sleep on the street instead unless the problem was fixed right away. Very embarrassed, Baradigah did what needed to be done and Rupshulam stayed with him. Rupshulam found that he had a lot of friends in London. They all wanted him to move from Cologne and set himself up as the Schatzerebbe, in the East End of London. But he wasn't yet ready to move, and he went back to Germany. But then, in 1929, with the rise of anti-Semitism in Germany, particularly after the collapse of Wall Street and the start of a worldwide recession that turned into the Great Depression, Rabshulam moved to London, where he initially lived in the East End, eventually living in Stamford Hill together with his family. Rabshulam Schatzer lived in London for three decades, and became one of the best-known Hasidic Rebbes in Western Europe, particularly after the Holocaust. He didn't really have Hasidim in the traditional understanding of that word, or even a Hasidic court as such, but he had many thousands of admirers, particularly among his colleagues, rabbis and rebbes, who deeply valued his integrity and his unshakable principles. But what almost nobody knew then, and certainly nobody knows now, is that behind the scenes, Reb Shulem Schotzer had been sucked into a dreadful and messy saga, a tragedy that played itself out in New York, causing him untold grief and wrecking the otherwise unblemished record of the wider Schotzer family. I mentioned earlier that Reb Shulem was the eldest of 17 children. A number of his siblings died soon after they were born or before they became adults. One of his brothers was the revered Rebbe of Sambor, Reb Chaim Yoel Moskowitz, murdered by the Nazis with his entire family in 1941. Another brother was Reb Chiel Michl Moskowitz, the Rebbe in Haradonka, who was also murdered by the Nazis in 1941. Here is a photo of Reb Chaim Yoel on the left and Reb Chiel Michl on the right. Another sibling, Rebbe Shulim's sister Malka, more than 20 years younger than him, married Reb Avrom Abish of Chayv, which is an offshoot of the Sun's Hasidic dynasty. Malka and her husband survived the Holocaust and settled in Haifa. Malka died in 1982, but Ram Abish died in 1984. Another one of Rabshulam's sisters was Babcha. Her actual name was Baba Shendel. She was born in June 1883, making her five and a half years younger than Rabshulam. Around 1900, she married a charismatic young man called Zayda Meir Shmelner, who was renowned for his brilliance in Torah scholarship, and for his piety, and also for his superlative kindness. Zayda father was Rabbi Aaron Shmelner, the rabbi of Novaria near Lvov, and his mother's father was rabbi Alexander Sender Safrin of Kamarna, son of Rabbi Tuk Isaac of Kamarna, a relative of rabbi, uh, Modra Yosef Moshe's first wife, He was a grandson of the original Rebbe Alexander Sender, the first Kamarna Rebbe. The Kamarna Hasidic dynasty, which was closely intertwined with their Zidachov dynasty relatives, was a powerhouse Hasidic group in Galicia in the early and mid 19th century. And in particular, Kamarna Rebbes and their descendants had the reputation of being clairvoyants and miracle workers. Zedemeyer became the Rav of Dorohoi. Neboțashani. His predecessor was Rav Chaim Taubus, of the famous talbus Romanian rabbinic family. You may recall the name Dorohoy relating to the story of Rav Pinchas Eliyoh also known as the Dorahoy Rebbe, who was kept a virtual prisoner in Dorohoy for decades by Romania's former chief rabbi, Rav Moshe Rosen. Rav Rosen prevented Rav Pinchas Elio and his wife from emigrating to Israel via his influence with the Romanian dictator Nicolae Ceausescu, even though all the Wasserman children and grandchildren lived in Israel. Rabbi Rosen defended himself by arguing that Romania couldn't afford to lose the country's one and only Sheikh. He also claimed he had asked a Shaila from a major Pesach who supported him. And according to Chabad, Rabbi Rosen asked the Lubavitcher Rebbe if he was doing the right thing, but the Rebbe urged him to allow Rav Asaman out for at least six months to be with his children. But he didn't. Instead, in 1975, Rav Rosen got permission for Rav Asaman to go to Israel very briefly for a family simcha on condition that Rav Asaman signed a letter that he would come back immediately, otherwise all of his possessions would be confiscated. For years, Every time Rav Rosen came to Israel, he was picketed by members of Rav Assaman's family and by their supporters, and they would stage demonstrations outside the Romanian embassy in Tel Aviv with placards, Let my parents go! Eventually, in 1989, Rav Assaman came for another family simcha, and this time he didn't go back, despite Rav Rosen's threats. Then, just a few months later, the Romanian revolution overthrew Ceausescu and his regime, for good. Let me tell you one more thing. Ravasaman's son, Yehuda Vasaman, was a Hasidic singer known as Ha'admur HaMesameach. He was an absolutely delightful fellow. Sadly, he died in November 2020 at the age of 70. But I digress, as admittedly I often do. Where was I? Ah, yes. Zayda Meyer Schmelner. He was a Stefanester Chossid, Stefanester Chossid, I should say. Close to the Stefanesht Rebbe, Babron Matisior Friedman, grandson of the Rizhina, who was the Rebbe in Stefanesht in south central Romania, Nipucharest, for 64 years, from 1869 until he died in 1933. There are very few write ups about Zedemeyer Schmelner in Orthodox Jewish publications, which won't surprise you once you hear his story. But a particularly sympathetic write-up appeared a couple of years ago in a very niche publication called Be'er Basode, which is published by Moistus Stefanest. My appreciation to the Baker Street irregular who brought the write-up to my attention. After Chaim Taubus died in 1908, Zedemeyer Schmelner was invited to become rabbi of the big shul in Botoshani, this is how he looked at the time. The epitome of a Hasidic rabbi, Rebbe, scion, of several renowned dynasties and Hasidic groups. Zayda Shmelner was a Renaissance man. He combined brilliant rabbinic scholarship in Talmud, Haloha and Kabbalah, with a great singing voice and incredible, almost impossible, generosity. Despite the great divisions which existed in the Batashani community, between those who were more conservative and those who were more inclined towards modernity, Zayda Schmelner seems to have been extremely popular, principally because he was so concerned with the social welfare of the wider community, and not just with rabbinic and religious concerns. His life was headed towards a distinguished career in the Romanian rabbinate, but it was not to be. In the summer of 1919, tragedy struck. Zayda Schmelner's wife, Baba Shendel, died. She was just 35 years old. By the way, am I the only one struck by the fact that Zayda married a Baba? Curious, don't you think? Anyway, Zayda schmelner was left bereft, a widower, with two orphan children, naftoli Tzvi, or hershela aged 16, and Shulam, aged 14. At the funeral, next to the open grave, Zayda schmelner the bereaved husband, made a stunning announcement, as if talking to his dead wife. I will dedicate the rest of my life to our sons, and I swear that I will never get married again for as long as I live. There was a stunned silence. Zayda Shmelner was 42 years old in the prime of his life. How was he going to manage to run a home with two teenage boys and still have a successful career as a rabbi if he swore never to marry again? It was insane. His father-in-law, Mothriyos of Moshe, Babche's father, said as much during the shiva. I'll call together a Beisdin and, and will annul your oath, he told his son-in-law. But Zayda Shmelna was adamant, stubborn, unyielding. He just kept on saying, I will never get married again. Nothing and no one could change his mind. Unable to continue in his rabbinic and communal duties in Botoshani, Zayda Schmelner moved to Bucharest at the other end of the country. His boys moved in with their Muscovitz grandparents in Sulitza, and he tried to sort himself out. But Bucharest didn't last too long. It seems things didn't work for him there. So he went to Paris. And then at the beginning of July, 1921, he boarded a ship at Le Havre and sailed to America, docking in New York, on July 10th. The trip was motivated by his intent to settle in America and he quickly ingratiated himself with whomever he could so that he could go back to Europe and bring his sons to America to join him. Within a couple of months, Schmelner was back in Europe, in Paris, where he appears to have hatched a plan to promote world peace in his role as a religious leader and specifically using a Jewish angle. It's not clear whom he was working with. Was he a front man for a group of do-gooders, or was the entire plan capricious fantasy? One thing is certain, somebody must have been funding him. Several journalists and commentators who covered Schmelner's return to New York in 1925 were drawn to his charismatic personality and impressed by his captivating speeches. Still, this doesn't explain where the money came from, and nor does it explain why a Qumarna Hasidic scion who was the Sulitzer son-in-law, would have suddenly become a peace-promoting universalist? I can't answer that question. I can only present you with the facts as they emerge from newspaper accounts and other readily available records. Perhaps there are archives in Paris or somewhere else that remain to be released into the public arena, and they can help us clear up this mystifying puzzle. But in the meantime, let's stick to what we know. In early January 1925, newspapers across the United States started carrying stories and editorials about the arrival of the Grand Rabbi of Romania, Rabbi Zayda M. Schmelner. Some newspapers referred to him as Dr. Schmelner. Here is how Schmelner's imminent arrival was reported by the Jewish Telegraphic Agency. Rabbi Zayda M. Schmelner of Romania, promoter of the so-called Jewish World Peace Movement, is to visit New York soon. Unlike most crusaders from abroad, Rabbi Schmelner is not in search of American gold. He will not solicit funds or fees from any source or in any manner during his stay. All he asks is an unbiased hearing for his peace plan. Whatever cost there may be for his prospective lecture tour will be borne entirely by supporters of the movement, which already has gained a secure foothold in Europe. The JTA report continues for its... After The article continued with a description of the plan itself. Dr. Schmelner is convinced that the hope of permanent peace for the world lies mainly with the Jewish race scattered throughout the world. It is his doctrine that most wars in this day and time grow out of commercial rivalry among the nations, and that if the lasting remedy is to be provided, it must be applied there at the source of the discord, And since the Jewish element figures so strongly in the trade markets of the world, Dr. Schmelner submits that here is fertile ground for fruitful results in the way of lasting international friendship and harmony. Not only this, but he believes that his plan is one, perhaps the only one, upon which all peoples may unite, irrespective of their support, of, or opposition to, the League of Nations, the World Court idea, or any other scheme now under active consideration. According to the New York Daily News, in late December 1924, the Welcome Committee for Zeda Schmelner was headed by a woman called Mrs. Mary Fels. Let me tell you who she was, because this is unbelievable. Mary Fels was the widow of Joseph Fels, one of the wealthiest Jews in the United States, a soap manufacturer who created the Fels Naphtha brand, laundry soap for pre-wash stain treatment, still in use to this day. The Fels Family Foundation, headed by Mrs. Fels, was incredibly philanthropic and generous. But just to be clear, Mary Fels' involvement with Zayda Schmelner is utterly baffling. She was a high-end sophisticate, whose philanthropic interests were Zionism, Jewish settlements in Eretz Israel, civil rights and labour rights in the United States and tax reform. The point is, she was certainly not Hasidic in any way, shape or form. How did she land up supporting Zayda Schmelner and heading a committee to welcome him? I simply have no idea. It makes no sense. An article in the Brooklyn Citizen had a fuller list of the Zayda Schmelner reception committee members. Only one name on the committee actually makes any sense. The Tolmer Rebbe, Reb David who had fled Russian persecution and settled in New York in 1913. But all the other members of the committee make no sense at all. Here are some examples. New York Supreme Court Judge Aaron Levy, a senior jurist, although... He later had to resign in disgrace. That's a story for another time. Another example, State Senator Nathan Strauss, Jr. Son of Nathan Strauss, co-owner of Macy's and husband of Helen Sachs, daughter of Bernard Sachs for whom Tay-Sachs disease is named and who was a member of the Goldman Sachs family, one of the wealthiest families in New York, not Jewish families, families. Nathan Strauss was one of the richest people in the world. There's a story there for another time as well. Nathan had a strange end. He was found dead in a motel room in 1961. Another committee member was Adolf Stern, a high-flying lawyer who was very senior in the hierarchy of B'nai B'rith. And so the list goes on all of them, the great and the good, although one other person on the committee is worth mentioning, not because he was from the great and the good, but because he would soon prove to be a grave liability to Schmalner. His name was Joseph Reiter, and he was the owner of Federal Food Stores, a chain of 200 grocery markets across New York's boroughs and on Long Island. We'll go back to him in a minute. According to the Brooklyn Citizen article, besides for launching his peace drive when he arrived in New York, Schmelner was also going to publish the first draft of a new international law, a law which he'd been working on for five years, which, once adopted across the world, would lead to world peace. It all sounded a bit far-fetched, but at this stage, everyone was drinking the Kool-Aid, and Zayda Schmelner's arrival in New York was being heralded in almost messianic terms. Let me just reiterate. I have no idea how Schmelner hooked these people, why they would have believed in him, or that he could do something that the world's greatest statesmen and leaders, political and religious, had failed to do since history began. But I'm not here to explain. I'm only here to tell a story. And what a story it is. On the 4th of February, 1925, Rabbi Zayda Meyer Schmelner docked in New York on the flagship Cunard White Star Line Ocean Liner, the RMS Berengaria. With him were his sons, Naftali, Tzvi and Shulem. It's all recorded in the Arrival Manifest. A large delegation was waiting to meet him. There were literally dozens of dignitaries and notables. After giving a short address on the dock, Schmelner was immediately whisked to New York City Hall, where he was introduced to the acting mayor, William Collins. And in the following days, Schmelner's arrival in the United States of America and his meeting with New York's mayor was reported in multiple newspapers across the United States. His new peace plan was touted as a diplomatic magic wand. For example, this Associated Press dispatch suggests in Schmelner's name that world peace is in the hands of world jury. And in this article from a newspaper called The Sentinel, Dr. Schmelner, as he is referred to, is said to have been a friend of the late Romanian King Charles, which was no doubt hyperbole. He probably met him in Romania, but it hardly meant he was his friend. The article also suggests that achieving peace throughout the world is something that rests with the Jewish nation, which is scattered across the globe. Because Jews are so dominant in the international markets, it is in their hands to ensure that no wars ever happen again. Just as an aside, and I'm not sure whether I need to say this, but for fear that you might not get this point, let me just say that the idea that international events can be controlled by Jews is exactly the narrative that was promoted then and is promoted now by the worst kinds of anti-Semites. The Protocols of the Learned Elders of Zion, one of the most insidious anti-Semitic publications ever released, is based entirely on the idea that Jews are everywhere and that they pull all the levers of power via a secret international cabal. To go ahead and propose, as Schmelner did, that the Jews are the ones who can prevent war if they want to, or not, and that's the point, or not, in other words, if they choose not to, is a very dangerous idea. It's a gift to anti-Semites. Of course, we all know it's completely ludicrous. Jews control nothing. And yet Zeder Schmelner seems to have been building his entire world peace project on the basis that Jews are uniquely placed to solve the world's problems. Totally, totally crazy and totally, totally irresponsible. One person who sounded a note of caution was the veteran Jewish journalist originally from Poland, William Spiegelman, who ran the JTA office in New York. This is what he wrote in his weekly column, Our New York Letter, which appeared on February 13th, 1925. Last week, Grand Rabbi Zayda Shmelner was the recipient of an official welcome by the city of New York. He was heralded weeks ahead of his arrival as the man who has in his mind a marvellous plan, how to make peace on earth and for goodwill to all men to prevail. But the message is not of a religious nature. If it was, this would be quite natural and understandable. Rabbi Shmelner who is reported as a man with an extremely magnetic personality and extensive erudition, wants to go one step further. He thinks that the world can be saved and future wars can be prevented if governments will accept what he refers to as a Jewish world peace plan. But what is this Jewish world peace plan? Why is it called a Jewish plan? The only thing that Rabbi Schmelner was willing to say was that he and five other men have been working for the past six years on a new code of international law which is based on Jewish law. If it is accepted, this code would do the miracle. Who the people are who worked on this instrument of law to achieve a purpose which even President Woodrow Wilson has failed to achieve, that remains a secret. It is not, however, a secret that Rabbi Schmelner, who was announced as the Grand Rabbi of Romania, merely spent a short time in that country on a flying trip from New York, which was big-hearted enough to extend him an official welcome on his return. And this is how Spiegelman concluded his article. Rabbi Schnelner, having been received as a man of whom great things are expected, owes it to the peace of mind of those who are anxious to know how peace could be secured, to disclose his world peace plan. Of course Spiegelman was wrong. It was a fact that Schmelner was from Romania. But Schmelner's hobnobbing with millionaires and his promotion of a utopian peace plan didn't quite match up with a Hasidic Romanian identity. In fact, to be frank, Schmelner didn't look very Hasidic. He had a trimmed beard, he wore an upmarket Homburg hat, and he a carefully tailored frock coat, which was topped off with a beautifully knotted silk tie. It was quite understandable. That his Romanian credentials were being questioned. But it wasn't just his uncertain geographic origins that were causing consternation. His speech on the dock shortly after he arrived raised hackles across the board. The speech was cited in detail by the Reform rabbinic leader Samuel Felix Mendelssohn of Chicago in an article for The Sentinel. What would poor American jury do without the constant flow of distinguished visitors from the other side, he began sarcastically. How could we benighted beings possibly get along without the perpetual advice and enlightenment which are showered upon us by great luminaries from across the waters? Our latest guest is Rabbi Zayda Meir of Botoshani, Romania, who styles himself as Grand Rabbi. And yet, even though I regularly read European Jewish newspapers, I have never come across the name of this Grand Rabbi. What's more, this gentleman considers himself Grand, not only by virtue of his title, but also by virtue of his ideas. He came to this country last week with a brand new international peace plan, which he claims can be brought into realization by the Jews of the world. We do not as yet know what this plan consists of, but we do know that its author is far from being a diplomat, for to speak of his own brethren as the sole possessors of the key to world peace is already an act of irresponsibility which is bound to give the erudite editor of the Dearborn Independent a topic for a brilliant editorial on the international Jew. Mendelssohn was referring to the anti-Semitic periodical, the Dearborn Independent, published by Henry Ford, which by 1925 had 900,000 subscribers and was one of the most prominent promoters of anti-Jewish conspiracy theories in America during the interwar period. Mendelssohn was far from finished. However, he said, even if Rabbi Schmelner is not a great diplomat, he surely is a great mixer since he has so many devoted friends among his Romanian lancelater. When he arrived in this country last week, he was met by a musical band and by a committee of 75 delegates who presented him with bouquets and floral pieces. And in view of the important message which this rabbi is bringing to this country, he naturally weighed carefully his words when when he was interviewed by reporters. Just to be clear, Mendelssohn was being super sarcastic and he therefore hastened to state that the majority of Romanian Jews are very anxious to come to America at once, and that if America had an open door, half of the people of Europe would straightaway arrive here. In order that our readers can appreciate the recklessness of these words, Mendelssohn added, allow me to quote a portion from a letter which mister Louis Marshall wrote to Solomon Suffrin, a well known Romanian Jew of New York, about Rabbi Schmölner and his statement to the newspapers concerning immigration to America. Now Louis Marshall was one of the most prominent Jews in America. He was one of America's top lawyers and he was head of the American Jewish Committee. What he said really mattered and it was an indicator of what the reaction was to Schmelner's arrival in mainstream Jewish America. Although what Rabbi Schmelner said is simply not true, Marshall said, Such a statement coming from him will be welcomed by the immigration restrictionists, both in and out of Congress. It will be regarded as corroboration of their contention that the restrictive legislation that has been enacted is necessary for the purpose of keeping out of this country the so-called hordes of Europeans who desire to come here. It will give an impetus to the efforts that are being made for further restriction, for a drastic deportation law and for the onerous registration of immigrants. Frankly, the rabbi's statement can only have been made as the result of inexcusable ignorance. Coming as it does at this time when we are seeking to help the stranded immigrants at the various European ports, our difficulties will be increased tenfold. Why can't men like this Rabbi shmelna exert some restraint on themselves and learn the virtues of silence? We don't require their advice or assistance, and the unfortunate people whom we are trying to help may well regard such irresponsible talk as a curse. If you can wield any influence over this gentleman, for heaven's sake, do so. That was the end of Louis Marshall's devastating letter, but Mendelssohn wasn't quite finished yet. A question which always bothers me, he added. Is why on every occasion when these European visitors, however obscure, come to this country, they are immediately hauled before the mayor or the governor or the president. We always make ourselves totally ridiculous. Zayda Schmelner had just gotten off the boat, and he'd literally generated a firestorm of controversy. His mess up regarding immigration was a cause for annoyance, not just because he was attracting negative attention regarding Jewish immigration, but more importantly, because he claimed to be a prominent European leader and no one in the Jewish community from right to left from orthodox to reform appears to have heard of him or wanted to have anything to do with him for that matter. His attempt, or perhaps it was others to present himself as one of the most senior rabbis in Romania had badly backfired. And I mean, badly backfired. Even at the grassroots levels, Ada Schmelner upset people. My friend Shimon Steinmetz remembers hearing from his grandfather about Schmelner's explosion onto the scene in 1925. Schmelner presented himself as a miracle-working Rebbe. One Shabbos, he was special guest at the shul where Shimon's great-grandfather was the Shammus. Schmelner put on a full Rebbe show, but Shimon's great-grandfather observed behavior that as far as he was concerned, was proof that Schmelner wasn't really such a holy man. During the Shabbos tish, a waiter accidentally dropped some food, and out of the blue, Schmelner started yelling at him. Everyone was very taken aback by Schmelner's vicious fury, and they went dead quiet. Schmelner realized he'd messed up, so he told the people not to worry, it's fine. Whenever he yelled at someone, they always benefited by coming into some money. Weirdly enough, the following Monday, one of the waiter's relatives died and he came into a nice inheritance. Of course, there were people who were extremely impressed by this coincidence and they started treating Schmelner like a a miracle worker. But others found the whole incident revolting and they wanted nothing more to do with him. There was also this other very weird thing that Schmelner would do. He would tell people that if he took a bath in their bathtub, then it made the bathtub holy extremely odd although as it turns out schmelner's holy man stick which was far more in keeping with his commander roots than his universalistic peace in our time campaign was a very useful moonlighting sideline particularly when within months of his arrival in new york his main funder joseph reiter was arrested for fraud and grand larceny joseph reiter was the founder and proprietor of Federal Food Stores Incorporated, a grocery chain with 200 stores across Brooklyn and Queens and in Long Island. On May 16, 1925, Writer was arrested along with two of his brothers, Samuel and Lewis, as well as two other officers of the company. They were all charged with grand larceny in the first degree. The case against them was pretty simple. Federal Food Stores Incorporated, officially had assets of almost $2.8 million, almost $50 million at today's dollar value. But there were outstanding liabilities of almost $3.7 million, $65 million at today's value, which meant the company was seriously bankrupt. Although, in and of itself, the fact that Federal Stores was bankrupt wasn't a criminal offence. What landed Writer in trouble and what led to his arrest was that he had secured the debt via warehouse receipts and an audit revealed that he had duplicated a bunch of those warehouse receipts using the duplicated receipts to secure more loans and in fact federal stores had far less inventory than the total on all the warehouse receipts that was used to guarantee the loans securing loans for a bankrupt company using inventory that you don't have is a felony Joseph Reiter was not the suave, high-flying, hobnobbing millionaire he had made himself out to be. He was a social-climbing crook who had defrauded financial institutions out of millions of dollars. And this wasn't the first time Reiter had landed in trouble. In 1918, he was convicted of profiteering after selling sugar at inflated prices, and the court had ruled then that he had to donate his excessive profits to the Red Cross to avoid jail time. But this time the court was not so lenient. Despite hiring one of New York's top lawyers, Peter P. Smith, a Catholic who later became a New York Supreme Court judge, Writer was convicted of the grand larceny charges just one month after his arrest, with the jury considering their verdict for exactly 10 minutes before coming back into the courtroom to convict him. Financial institutions and creditors were left with losses of more than $3 million. Writer served time in Sing Sing, He was sentenced to 10 years in prison, although he was out after serving less than four, released on parole in 1929. But his meteoric elevation into the highest echelons of society was over for good. He died in 1959 at the age of 74. Sadly, after seeing his only child, his son Saul, die in action towards the end of the Second World War. Saul writer that's his grave next to his father's, served as a private first class with the job of radio operator. He was one of the over 2,000 Americans who lost their lives in the war against the Japanese between 1941 and 1945. Joseph Reiter's wife, Bertha, that's her grave, died in 1986 at the age of 101 years old. Zeider Schmelner played a minor role as the court process unfolded against the Reiter family. On July 2nd, 1925, a Brooklyn newspaper reported that Schmelner had appeared as a prosecution witness for Lewis Reiter. State case takes an odd twist, ran the headline. The state had put Schmelner on the stand to prove that Lewis had gone to Europe to raise money for federal stores, but they found it impossible to get a straight word out of him. And then, to make things even more crazy, the next witness revealed that Schmelner had received $5,400 into a private bank account from Joseph Reiter, which somewhat compromised anything Schmelner had to say. After the dramatic downfall of his sugar daddy, the public record on Schmelner, at least in the secular press, goes very quiet. He lived on the Upper West Side of Manhattan at 127 Riverside Drive, far away from the Hasidic communities of the Lower East Side in Brooklyn, and very remote from his roots in Bukovina. In 1927, he is referenced in an obscure Brooklyn newspaper as having officiated at the wedding of Etty Viner to Joseph Diamond at Broadway Central Hotel in the East Village, which at the time was one of New York's fanciest hotels. But the Yiddish press was full of him the Wunder Rebbe indulged in a frenzy of self-promotion, as was noted in a scathing editorial in Unze Express on November 20th, 1931. Schmelner made frequent appearances in the centers of Romanian Jewish immigrant activity. Adas Das Yasi Yassi congregation and congregation Shari Shemaim, which called itself the first Romanian-American synagogue, both of them in the Lower East Side. But those two shuls were not very religious. And they were certainly not very Chasidish. So for Yomim Noraim, Schmelner went to the Stefanester Stiebel in Brooklyn, having promoted himself as an intimate acquaintance of the Holy Stefaneshta Rebbe, and also as a Rebbe in his own right. Schmelner gave rousing speeches at the Stefaneshta Stiebel, and he was also the Baltfiller. He also gave blessings to those who lined up to visit him, of course, taking payment for every blessing in the form of pidgin gelt. Truthfully, He was not the only minor league rebeler in New York in the 1920s and 1930s who was eking out an existence by selling miracles to gullible common folk. The difference between Schmelner and all the others was that Schmelner took his miracles business to a whole new level. Even the deeply cynical op-ed writer in Unze Express, in his wildest dreams, could not have imagined what Schmelner was really up to. The first indication that Zayda Schmelner had progressed from petty deception to fraud on a grand scale was a flurry of newspaper articles in early May 1936. The beleaguered Brooklyn District Attorney, William Gagan, who was under fire for being soft on crime, had received a complaint from a widow called Anna Siegel, who claimed that she had loaned $200 to a woman called Mary Bird, who told her that she was the personal secretary of the wonder rabbi Zayda Meir Schmelner, and that in return for the loan, Mrs. Siegel's paralyzed daughter would experience a miraculous recovery. As security for the loan, Miss Bird gave Mrs. Siegel a diamond ring that turned out to be worthless. In the meantime, Mrs. Siegel's daughter was still very much paralyzed. Siegel called Byrd to complain, but Byrd demanded another $600, otherwise, she said, the rabbi's blessings wouldn't work. By this time, Mrs. Siegel was very suspicious and she called the police. They told her to get Byrd to come and collect the $600. When Bird arrived, the police, who were hiding in a closet, let her transact with Siegel and then arrested her on the spot. Gagan acted swiftly. As soon as Bird was arrested, she was interviewed under caution. She told the police about her boss, Rabbi Schmelner, and Gagan immediately requested 20 detectives to investigate what was turning out to be one of the most bizarre fraud cases ever investigated in New York history. The thing is, Mary Bird was a very unlikely criminal. She was a plump, Buck toothed single woman who was perpetually in good spirits and upbeat about her situation, and she held nothing back because she was utterly convinced that she had done nothing wrong. Berg told the police that she had been taking between twelve thousand and fourteen thousand dollars a month for Schmelner for at least the past six years, which means that Schmelner's revenue since 1930 had been between eight hundred and sixty thousand and one million dollars, roughly 20 million dollars in today's money. According to Bird, all of this money was for Schmelner to pray for people in desperate need of help. Whether they had medical issues or financial issues or were dealing with other difficult personal matters, Bird told the police that she was Schmelner's agent and that she also managed a team of his agents. Between them all, they identified Marx although she called them people in need, and they targeted them aggressively so that they gave over their money in return for blessings. To top it all, Bird said that everything she did was under Schmelner's personal direction and with his inspiration. Gagan and the police were sceptical at first, but the more they investigated, the more they discovered that that what Bird was saying was true. They raided Bird's swanky Riverside Drive apartment in Manhattan, where they discovered records of money that had been deposited by Burden in the previous six months, amounting to $60,000, equivalent to $1.3 million in today's money. They also discovered literally thousands of names of people who had interacted with Byrd, many of them who were paralysed or were the relatives of people who were paraplegics. Gagan set up a team of accountants to unravel the coded financial records of this strange scheme, a scheme which sold miracles for cash, the entry level ticket price was $559, with the next level blessing selling for $1033, both of them equal to the numerical value of Schmelner's name in Hebrew letters, one with his father's name and one with his surname. The most expensive blessing was available for the numerical value of the Jewish year, which in 1936 meant it cost the petitioner a staggering $5,696, which was $121,000 at today's values. Mary Bird was a very curious foil for Schmelzer. Her real name was Miriam Berdicheva. She was the daughter of Sol and Rose Berdicheva, Russian immigrants who had arrived in New York in 1892. She was born in 1896 in New York, and she had a sister, Bessie, who was born in 1900. According to the 1920 census, Mary's mother tongue was Yiddish. It also records that she was a professional bookkeeper. How Mary Bird got caught up with Schmelner is a detail that is lost in the mists of history. But what we do know is that she became Schmelner's Nathan of Gaza, promoting the Schmelner brand in any way that she could, and convincing anyone she met that her rabbi's blessings were exactly what they needed to resolve any problem that they had and would cure any sickness and it was therefore worth paying any price to get his blessing. Schmelner and Bird lived in the same building on Riverside Drive. He had an apartment on the ninth floor and she had an apartment on the seventh floor. The co- collaboration between Schmelner and Bird is undoubtedly one of the most curious partnerships I have ever come across in all of my historical research over the years. The Yiddish press referred to Bird as Schmelner's gabberter which was making fun of them both. Yiddish newspaper commentators speculated, some of them respectfully, some of them less so, whether or not the relationship between Shmelner and Bird was more than just one of boss and secretary. All of them noted that it was extremely strange for a Hasidish Rebbe to have a woman as his personal assistant. And the biggest mystery of all was this, how is it possible that Shmelner totally cooperated with the money-making scam? Was he in on it, everyone asked, or was Mary Bird duping him as well? And that was notwithstanding the fact that Schmelner used a large proportion of the money for charitable purposes. He became one of the most generous and best-known philanthropists of the mid-1930s. There is a letter written by the Baba v. Rebbe, rabbin Tzien Halberstam, at the beginning of 1936, in which he informs his correspondent, Rabbi Melech Elazer Ahrenberg, author of Sefer Arzi Halvonayn, that he personally knows of someone who had sent Schmelner a request for help. Someone who Schmelner didn't know and, and he'd never met and Schmelner mailed him thousand dollars. The Munkacharebbe heard about this incredible gift and just remember thousand dollars in 1936 is the equivalent of more than twenty thousand dollars in today's money. Anyway, the Munkacherebbe also sent Schmelner a request for one thousand dollars to help pay for a poor couple to get married and guess what? He got the $1,000. Soon afterwards, a third request went out and everyone involved was sure that Schmelner would turn it down or send much less or even ignore the letter. But once again, $1,000 came in the mail. The Bava informs of Arenberg in the letter that it was clear that Schmelner was ready to send such a generous donation to anybody who turned to him for help and therefore he was going to request a donation from Schmelner for another couple, both orphans, who were getting married and had nowhere else to turn for money. Of course, none of this helped Schmelner with the state's investigation into his financial affairs. The DA initially prepared subpoenas for over 300 people who had been fleeced. All of their names and addresses were traced via Mary Bird's record books, but the subpoenas were unnecessary. The publicity generated by Byrd's arrest had short-circuited the need for anyone to be subpoenaed because disgruntled clients started turning up in droves at police stations across New York to complain about Schmelner and Byrd's miracles racket. In December 1936, Schmelner was unceremoniously arrested and thrown into jail, where he remained, having refused to pay the $5,000 bail until his name was cleared. In May 1937, Schmelner and Byrd were hauled up in front of a grand jury and indicted for grand larceny, with a sample criminal charge based on evidence given by a fellow called Bernard Rudolph, who had an electrical supply business and had been scammed out of $60,000. But the newspapers were clear that the amount of money Schmelner had taken from his clients was much bigger. Miracle Rabbi Malktad pious Jews out of $2 million, ran one particularly shocking headline. In June 1937, a devastating editorial by Paul A. Peters of the Jewish Telegraphic Agency was syndicated around the United States, and what Peters said was very revealing. Whatever else he may be, and whatever the New York courts may decide to do with his grand larceny indictments, the man who is known to hundreds of thousands of followers throughout the world as Rabbi Zayda Meir Shmelner, is a character that rivals in interest the rogues and racketeers of fiction. Twelve years ago he arrived and was billed as the Grand Rabbi of Romania. He got a city hall reception of the sort normally given for channel swimmers and other returning heroes. Why and how he got that reception is a story in itself and one that stirred the interest of Samuel Zuckerman, who discovered, among other things, that there was no such title as Grand Rabbi of Romania, but also that one of the committee, of the sponsors for the Grand Rabbi's reception, had any idea of who or what he was, and they had merely, merely lent their names to the committee as a matter of established political custom. Zuckerman, suspicious of the whole business, was the only reporter covering the reception who wrote a story that left no doubt as to what he thought of it all. Then, almost 12 years later, his suspicions appeared suddenly, jarringly, to be confirmed. The Grand Rabbi and his secretary, Miss Mary Bird, have now been charged with obtaining money fraudulently. On the promise that the Rabbi would communicate with God in their interest, its clients were allegedly persuaded to turn over sums of money to him always through his secretary, varying from a few dollars to many thousands. The transactions were always listed as loans for which the clients received notes. In this fashion, the pair is believed to have obtained no less than five million dollars from clients throughout the world. The secretary called on clients in a handsome limousine with a liveried chauffeur. And these clients also included the poorest of the poor, not even the widow's might, being too insignificant to spur the pair's interest. That some portion of the funds obtained was put to charitable purposes appears certain. For example, the rabbi is known to have paid rent for six years for the late Mendel Bayliss, hero of the famous Kiev ritual murder trial. And the Baylis family in the Bronx to this day sings his praises. And now, one of the most famous lawyers of the day, Samuel Leibowitz, has unofficially entered the case and the final chapters of the story may produce yet more interesting developments. That last sentence was an absolute showstopper. Schmelner's use of Samuel Leibowitz as his defence lawyer was very, very interesting. Peters was absolutely right. Leibowitz was one of the most famous lawyers in America. If not the most famous in America. Known for defending the indefensible and notorious for winning the most unwinnable cases, he was like the Alan Dershowitz of his day. Leibowitz had only recently concluded his involvement with the extremely contentious Scottsboro Boys case, in which he had vigorously and relentlessly defended the nine black boys who had been accused of rape in Alabama. Another detail about Labowitz was that he was actually born in Yassi, which meant he was a Romanian Jew, which of course gave, it, gave him a natural affinity with his new controversial client. The trial of Schmelner and Bird, which took place in June 1938, over a year after the indictment, was an absolute circus. By then, Schmelner had been in jail for over 18 months. Before the trial got underway, the DA's office sent Schmelner to Bellevue Hospital New York's best-known psychiatric facility, to check whether or not he was fit for trial. The new DA prosecuting the case was Thomas E. Dewey, later governor of New York, and the man who lost two presidential elections, one to Roosevelt in 1944 and one to Truman in 1948. Dewey was extremely worried about the Schmelner trial apparently schmelner's behavior in jail had been quite strange by which i mean strange enough that dewey felt that it might undermine a conviction let's face it the mere fact that schmelner had refused to come up with the bail money so that he was free to prepare for his trial was strange enough he had also dumped his star lawyer instead opting for an obscure non-entity attorney called morris cousin schmelner was so utterly convinced of his innocence, he didn't think he needed a high-flying, expensive lawyer. Cousin would be just fine, or so Schmelner thought. He couldn't have been more wrong. Revelations at the trial were beyond strange, as indeed was Schmelner's behaviour. Rudolf testified that he had invested $60,000 in an explosives business, and that Schmelner promised to pay him $100 a week as a return on his investment. The story behind the explosives company was totally bizarre. Schmelner claimed that his involvement in the cause of world peace had given him exclusive access to international armaments manufacturers, and that if the ownership of these companies was in the hands of those who wanted peace, then there would never be another war. Yes, I know, it sounds completely ridiculous. I mean, how could anyone have believed such rubbish? It makes absolutely no sense, but Rudolf fully trusted the rabbi and he fell for the story hook, line and sinker, leading him to invest his life savings in this ludicrous scheme. Unsurprisingly, he was never paid a dividend, not $100 a week, not $1 a week, not even a single cent. And when Rudolf asked for his capital investment back, Schmelner said he didn't have it. In the courtroom during the trial, the atmosphere was tense and dramatic. Time after time, Schmelner had outbursts, yelling loudly in Yiddish, mainly at those in the public gallery, but sometimes at the judge and at witnesses. The judge, Justice Charles Cooper Knott Jr., would call a recess and Schmelner's lawyer would try to calm him down, but it was a waste of time and Schmelner was removed from the courtroom. Schmelner also looked terrible. He had aged considerably. There are a couple of photos of him that were taken during the trial. This one appeared in the secular press and this one appeared in the Yiddish press. Mary Bird's behavior was also bizarre. Unlike Schmelner, She took the stand and gave testimony in her defence. When Dewey asked where all the money had gone, she laughed out loud. I swear on the Bible and the Talmud that I'll go to the electric chair before I reveal where any of the money has gone, she scoffed. Composed and articulate, her obsession with Shmelner was clear for everyone to see. Investing with Rabbi Shmelner was a great privilege, Bird told the court, and merely having money invested with him enhanced your life beyond measure. On June 23rd, it took the jury just half an hour to reach a guilty verdict. As soon as the verdict was read out, Schmelner started screaming and had to be removed from the court. The following day, the New York Times headline read, Rabbi is convicted of grand larceny. According to the Daily News, Schmelner and Bird faced between five and 10 years in prison and Judge Knott would pass sentence on June 29th. But Schmelner's behavior continued to deteriorate while in custody and he was ordered back to Bellevue, a fact that was duly reported in the Daily News. Sentencing was postponed until August 16th. On that day, Schmelner sat silently in the court as Judge Knott sent him to Sing Sing for three to six years. Mary Bird got one to two years. Schmelner's Sing Sing admission document described his crime in this way. The prisoner defrauded a man of money by false representation. It also revealed that Schmelner had never become a US citizen, that while he could read English well, he couldn't write it fluently, that he was a fluent German, Hebrew, and Yiddish speaker, and that he considered himself a victim of circumstance. He gave the prison guard all the money that he had with him, 25 cents, and his cufflinks, and then he signed the admission form. Although Schmelner was eligible for parole in January 1940, he was not paroled until November 1942, by which time he had been in prison for almost six years. And by November 1942, life for the Jewish community of New York had well and truly moved on from Zeyder Schmelner and from melodramatic grand Larceny trials. Schmelner's release from prison went totally unnoticed. The world was now at war with Hitler. And in the same month that he was released, for the first time since the World War began, American newspapers had finally reported that the Nazis were systematically killing Jews in countries that were under their control. Nobody noticed Zayda Schmelner slinking back into Manhattan where he lived quietly in an apartment on West End Avenue together with his son Shulam, who had never got married and never got married. Here are Zayda and Shulam recorded on the 1950 US Census. Schmelner's other son, Naftali Tvi, didn't get on with his father. He, um, yeah, he used the first name Hermann. That's him on the photo that he used for his naturalisation papers. In the late 1930s, Hermann changed his last name to Scheller so that he would no longer be called Schmelner. According to his grandchildren, with whom I was in touch, Hermann was no longer in contact with his father after the late 1930s and he never spoke of him nor of his Hasidic roots to his family. Herman's first wife, Anna, died in 1946. Together they had a daughter called Sandra, a son, Stanley, and a daughter, Roseanne, who died as a child. After Anna died, Herman remarried to Ginny. Herman died in 1992 at the age of 89 and Ginny died in 2007 at the age of 102. Zade Zey, Meyer Shmelner eventually entered a nursing home. In 1958, his brother-in-law, Avchanoich Henech Dov Zilbefar of the Caidanova Botashan Rebbe, came to America for his nephew's wedding and he went to visit Shmelner. The two of them reminisced about times gone by all those decades earlier in Romania. Shmelner had sacred objects that he had inherited from his ancestors, and the Kaiden of Abotashana Rebbe asked to see them. During his final years, Shmelner relied on his oldest brother-in-law, Rupshulam Shotsar, Rupshulam Muscovitz of London, for financial support. How times had changed. Previously, he had been the wealthy philanthropist sending generous financial donations to anyone who approached him. Now, he was reduced to being a schnorrer. Who needed financial support from his family. On Friday, March 13, 1963, Zedor Schmelner died. He was 85 years old. Schmelner was buried at the Montefiore Cemetery in Queens, and on his Matseva, aside from details of his distinguished ancestry, was a reference to the Posuk recording Joseph's words to Pharaoh's wine butler in Baratius. <speaking in> he <Hebrew> meaning Schmelner, did absolutely nothing wrong, and yet they threw him into prison. Yup, even in death, Schmelner was still protesting his innocence. There's one more loose end to tie up before I come to the end of this incredible story. What happened to Schmelner's intrepid accomplice, Mary Bird? She was released from prison long before Schmelner, but she never got married. Perhaps Schmelner remained the true love of her life. I guess we will never know. Mary Bird died in 1980 and was buried next to her mother at the Mount Carmel Cemetery, just a few miles from Schmelner's grave at Montefiore. Her gravestone inscription, on a her very tiny gravestone, is simple. Mary Bird, beloved sister and aunt. Once she was the charismatic sidekick of the mastermind in one of the most curious criminal enterprises of Jewish history, but ultimately she faded into total obscurity. The Schmelner story is finally over, but I do have one more thing to say. You will recall that the Shotzerebbe instructed for his last will and testament to be publicized after his death. In it, he promised to help those who visited his grave and asked for help in exchange for a commitment on their part. But don't promise me something and don't deliver, he warned. That's deceit. And there is nothing in the world that is worse than deceit there is already far too much deceit in this world. Maybe Rapshulam Schotzer was thinking of his brother-in-law, Zayda Meir Schmelner, when he wrote that, thinking how this once brilliant man, with such a glittering career ahead of him, had allowed himself to be destroyed by getting involved in deceit. It's possible that Schmelner deceived himself, thinking that if the money was going to charity, it didn't matter how he had obtained it. But of course it matters. As the Shotser Rebbe said, that's deceit. And there is nothing in the world that is worse than deceit. There is already far too much deceit in this world. And I think on that note, we'll call it a day. Thank you so much. And I hope to see you again for the next episode when you will hear the story of a man who faked being a Hasidish Rebbe from a distinguished dynasty and also the story of a Hasidish Rebbe from a distinguished dynasty who announced in the newspapers He was not really a Rebbe. Until then, keep exploring Jewish history and don't be shy to get in touch. Thank you.